Good morning. If you don't know me, if you're new here, I'm Jody Killingsworth. I'm pastor for worship here. And this morning we're going to be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and he's ramping up here in this passage, getting ready to do something pretty bodacious. Is that sounding kind of weird? No? Fine. Okay. Sounds weird to me. He's getting ready to do something pretty bodacious. He's getting ready to brag and at great length about himself. And he admits to having some pretty amazing, startling motivations for doing this. Motivations that we would not generally think of as godly motivations. Uh, But he explains these motivations and this boasting of his in the context of a couple of really strong analogies that make sense out of them for us. He sees the Corinthian church sitting on the edge of a precipice, a dangerous cliff. And like a good police negotiator, he's pulling, what he's doing is he's pulling out the book, you know, and he's flipping through and he's willing to do anything that the book allows him to do in order to get the guy off of the ledge. Okay, so he's trying all kinds of things. He has been trying all kinds of things up to this point. And now he's going to boast as well. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see what the Lord has for us to learn. Verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband... So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing I will continue to do, so that I may, be, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of this word this morning, that it would come with the power of your Holy Spirit and with his authority, and that it would give us 
Give us the words of life today, we pray, Father. That's what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins by asking the Corinthians in verse 1 to bear with him in a little foolishness. What does he mean by foolishness? He's getting ready in the next passage, one Lane's going to preach on next month, starting in verse 23 and onward. He's going to launch into this extensive catalog of personal accomplishment, personal boasts. He's getting ready to boast about himself. And calling this boasting foolishness is an exercise in cleverness on his part. It's, it's double entendre. It's, uh, clev- it's uh, foolish on a number of different levels. First level is that it's, of course, personal boasting is foolish. And Paul knows that. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, the king, standing on his balcony overlooking all of Babylon and thinking to himself in his heart, look what I've made. God humbled him, right? God hates. He's opposed to the proud. It is foolish to boast. What is man? He's like grass, like the flower of the field. So he perishes. It's foolish to boast. And Paul knows that. He said it in 1 Corinthians, and again in 2 Corinthians. He's quoted the Old Testament saying, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting must have been a problem there in the Corinthian church. Boasting is foolish in and of itself. But what Paul's going to boast about makes it twice foolish. It's in a double negative sort of way. He's not going to list for us his many successes, how many conversions he's seen, how many countries he's preached the gospel in, how many missions, organizations he's started, how many boards he serves on, how many important people have invited him over for dinner. He's not going to list any of that stuff. Rather, he's going to tell us how many times and how many ways he's been rejected in his ministry, how many times he's failed, as it were as we would consider failure. How many times he's been thrown in prison? How many times he's been run out of town? How many nasty things have been said about him? You know, The constant burdens he has to bear. The times he's had to go on without food because nobody would feed him. You know? This, this is foolish because it's actually not good boasting. The illustration I thought of to explain this is, uh, is uh, the bios at classical music concerts in the programs. I've been to a lot of them. I've had my own, done my own good bit of boasting. And there's always this phrase that they inevitably say. You probably know it, Dwayne. So such and such a person is the whatever da 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 of his uh, the the foremost da 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 of his generation. That's what they always say. And Aaron heard this in the first sermon and, and he went and printed off a bio for me. And here's what it says. Co Gabriel Camida. Any, anybody know who that is? This is a pretty musically literate church. You know, we have the music school in town. Anybody know who Co Gabriel Camida is? Violinists? Anybody know? Heard of, heard of him? Well, apparently he's even, he's among the, the brilliant and promising, the outstanding. He's a genius violinist. Critics and colleagues alike say he's one of the next generation's foremost emerging artists. Quote, he is one of the most remarkable players of his generation. Every bio of his generation. His Stradivarius turned into a magic violin. (laughs) 
If you want to learn how to boast, write, go to classical music concerts and read the bios. If you want to learn how to boast wrong, read the rest of this chapter. It's not good boasting. It's foolish boasting. Why would Paul do it? It's foolish to boast. It's foolish, even more foolish, to boast bad. Why would he do it? He says in verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Achaia, I don't know how to say it. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. There are men, very dangerous men, who are going around the church thumping their chests. And they're trying to get attention, they're trying to gain a hearing for themselves in the way that academics get a hearing for themselves. By differentiating their thinking, their logic, their insights from everybody else's. They're having original thoughts. They're preaching a different Jesus, Paul says. The church does not need our original thoughts. It never needs them. They're dangerous. They're destructive. What it needs is faithfulness to God's very old, eternal truth. That's what is needed. Just the boring commitment to God's eternal truth. So Paul is going to boast foolishly and in a foolish way because he has to. He has to cut off opportunity for these false shepherds that are going to lead the sheep astray. They're getting attention by boasting So Paul, pretty much after he's exhausted every other tool in his belt, is going to boast also. But he has more visceral emotions than just a kind of intellectual, they're boasting, well, okay, I guess I've got to boast. He has some really visceral emotions that are driving him to this. He talks about them in the first verses. Verse 2, he says, I'm going to do this because, you see it? I'm jealous. And verse 3, he says, I'm afraid. Those aren't emotions that we normally associate with godliness. Jealousy and fear. Those aren't faithful kinds of emotions, right? Well, they are. Paul says explicitly with jealousy that it's a godly jealousy that he has. And I believe it's a godly fear. First, let's look at uh, at Paul's jealousy. How is it that he can call it godly? Godly jealousy is what flows out very naturally from a man who loves Jesus Christ and loves his bride, the church. It's something that just comes out of him when necessary. Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for... For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Clearly, Paul is personally invested in their spiritual health and well-being. He sees himself as standing apart from, in some way, 
and in between Christ and his church in some kind of mediating role, having a responsibility to Christ and to the church as an apostle. What's his responsibility to, to, uh, to the bride? Well, he says, to betroth them to, to the right husband. is It's presented here as something that's already been done. I betrothed you to one husband, as it were, the right husband. To one. As, as opposed to other husbands. You know, a husband with very clear characteristics, goals, personality, truths. One husband, as opposed to these other husbands. I betrothed you to them. That's his response. He had, he had a responsibility. He accomplished it when he went into Corinth and preached the truth about Jesus, and they received it with faith. He betrothed them, these believers, to one husband, to Jesus Christ, with the gospel. He also had a response. He has a responsibility, a future responsibility here, to present Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, with the right bride, the bride that he bargained for, a holy and a pure one. So on the one hand, he's functioning like the bride's father, making sure she gets a good husband for herself. And on the other hand, he's functioning like the friend of the bridegroom that comes out of the passage that the song, the new song we sang this morning is based on, Matthew 25. Jesus refers to the friend of the bridegroom. He's, he's, he's acting as Christ's friend who is acting on Christ's behalf in the church here, making sure that they stay pure and faithful to him. And so he's jealous in that way, as a friend is jealous for, the, you know, for Christ who he loves, for the bridegroom. And he's, he's actually expressing Christ's own jealousy To help you understand this better, let me briefly explain Jewish wedding customs. They don't have this engagement thing that we have today. Not even the dating thing that comes before it. What they have is betrothal, or at least they used to. And the betrothal is a contractual agreement that's entered into between a father of of a woman and a young man. It's a very serious binding contract. We've lumped this into our wedding ceremony where the, the father gives the bride away. That's very symbolic of what betrothal is, although for them, that was the main event. And it was something that happened usually well in advance of the, the consummation. It was the ceremony, and it was serious. And the terms were debated between the father and the young man, and they, you know, they came to an agreement. The young man had to prove him his desire for this woman by, by fulfilling whatever hurdle or price or responsibility that the, the father set, whatever terms the father set, he had to fulfill. And so he, there would be a time in which he worked to fulfill these. Sometimes it would be labor. Sometimes it would be money, a price. Sometimes it would just be practical requirements. You got to have a house. You got to have da 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 da. You have to have this much money in your bank account, you know? And then you can marry my daughter. So he worked to fulfill those obligations. It's a very serious covenant. Um, the, uh, you couldn't get out of it without a divorce, even though that marriage had not been consummated. So the, the, 
the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, had an obligation too. And that was the, bride, the bridegroom, when he, when he uh, would, would finally work off his, you know, fulfill his obligations contractually, all that would be left for him to do would become and claim his bride. So usually this happened in the middle of the night. It's pretty symbolic. And he, it would, they would intentionally do this in the middle of the night. And before the, bride, before the groom came, he would send his best man out in front of him to announce to the house that he's coming. That's Paul in this, uh, in this analogy that Paul's using. Paul is a friend of the bridegroom. Um, the, the, the bridegroom, the, the friend of the bridegroom had further responsibility to once the, 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 the groom arrived and took his bride and, and consummated the marriage, he would stand outside the door of their home waiting for the proof of her virginity. And when he received it, he would announce joyfully to the, all of the community that the bride was chaste. And then there would be incredible partying and rejoicing all over town. And he had an obligation, just as the father had an obligation during this time of betrothal, to see to, administrate, care for the chastity, the purity of the bride. Paul is very much in this, in his relationship to the church, a friend, friend of the bridegroom, jealous for her chastity, for her faithfulness. What makes his, his jealousy godly? It's because it's not motivated by his desire for them to like him or to join themselves to him, but to join themselves and be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, her husband. Just as there's two kinds of jealousy, Paul, I believe, is saying that there's two kinds of fear. The fear is the second thing he's motivated by. There's a godly and an ungodly fear. An ungodly fear is one that has no grounding in either God's truth or our experience. I'm often afraid myself that God is not going to provide for me in whatever way in the future. But this is an ungodly, completely irrational fear. God has said, he has promised, he will provide. He has told me that I should not, must not worry. And up until now, he has been coming through perfectly well. It is irrational, it is wicked to doubt God's faithfulness and provision. That's an ungodly fear. But not all fear is like that. Think of, think of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us fear, it says, if while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. This is a fear that is very legitimate very godly for us to have. We're commanded to have it. Let us fear, lest while there's a promise of entering rest, we, can, we come short of receiving it. And it's based not only in God's truth, but in, in God's, the history of God's own people. Just up until that point in chapter 3, he's been rehearsing, the author has been rehearsing the history of God's chosen people led out of Egypt into the wilderness, who in their unfaithfulness displease God, and they don't enter the promised land. They wander in the wilderness until they die, and their kids get to go. That's a godly fear. It's legitimate. 
I'm afraid for you, Corinthian church, so I'm going to boast a little. And his fear is grounded in both God's truth and in history. Chapter, verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, the thing he's afraid of happening to the Corinthian church, this, this has happened before. You see that? It's happened in the garden with Eve. What exactly is Paul afraid of happening? He's afraid that they will be led astray just as Eve was deceived, that they will be deceived. What did Eve say happened to her? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What What might they be led astray from? He says, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The translation here is not really adequate. That word simplicity, see it? I'm afraid that you'd be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It sounds a lot like a proof text for those who want to pit loving Jesus against loving doctrine. You see that? Simplicity. Sounds a lot like, see, all we need is you know, simplicity, devotion to Jesus. That's all that the gospel is. No creed but Christ. Doctrine divides. Christ unites. You can see it right here. See, simplicity. Well, it's not a very good translation, but there, there's a better one that would make less sense in English because <laughs> it's, a, it's a less common meaning of the word, but it would be better to say singular rather than simple. I'm afraid that you'd be led astray from a singular, as in one, pure, singular, Devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, the real Jesus who I preached to you, the one I betrothed you to. He's afraid, not because they are, yeah, it's a, I, w- I want you to see is that it's a doctrinal thing as well. He says, I'm afraid that this will happen in your mind, not in your heart. That's pretty surprising. Devotion. In your mind. An interesting choice of words. So what he's saying is, I'm afraid that you will be led astray doctrinally. He's warning not against a weakening of emotional affection or closeness to Jesus, but from an intellectual understanding of who he is versus who other people present him to be. He says, verse 4, if, see, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not received or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you, you bear this beautifully and you shouldn't. The bridegroom's contractual obligations have been fulfilled. You understand that? All that awaits is for him. He's waiting upon the time that the, his father has set for him to come and collect his bride. He's waiting anxiously for it. Paul, the friend of the bridegroom, Christ's friend, has gone out announcing to the bride his imminent arrival. And he's called her to awaken from sleep and make herself ready 
to beautify herself. Paul went out preaching the gospel, the gospel of a particular specific bridegroom. And it included instructions for the bride concerning who she is, what she will be, how to prepare herself for his arrival. Paul, what I'm trying to say is this. Paul's gospel wasn't for spiritual laws. You with me? It wasn't a little nut that you can crank out a string, a ribbon with multicolors, and each color represents like eight different aspects to this thing called the gospel that we can present to people. Paul's gospel, it can be simplified. Don't get me wrong. The gospel can be understood. It can be made clear. It is easy to grasp. But Paul would never have understood the gospel to be this little thing of 15 little verses that are strung together versus everything else that he said and wrote that isn't the gospel that and has is optional in some way. Paul would never have had that kind of understanding. To Paul, the gospel was the book of Romans, the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so on. He would never have conceived that we would turn the gospel into a a kind of a feeling that we're selling to people or a trite little set of, you know, steps that are easy to follow and easy to understand and that you can separate in some way from commands like wives submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Pursue peace with all men. Paul would never have conceived of a day in which we would think of the gospel as separate from these things. See, this analogy of the bridegroom and the bride is a really great way of understanding all that Paul was about. Because on the one hand, he spent about half his time going to people and explaining to them who the groom is, what he is like, precisely what he is like. And then out of that, who they are, who she is, how she is to live in such a way as to be certain that she's ready. And that is all he wrote. That's what he always was doing. Getting the bride ready. Making sure she was pure. What's my point in saying that? Well, I'm trying to establish that Paul had one gospel that he received, that he taught, That's everything that we know that he taught us, that we have today in the Bible. And the false apostles had something different. You understand? They had a different Jesus that they were preaching. Was it entirely different? No. It wouldn't be entirely different, would it? They wouldn't be duped by that. It's just enough similar that they could be tricked into accepting it, and mistaking it for the real Jesus, and just enough different that it would kill them. And this isn't surprising, Paul says. He tells them that this is exactly how they should expect Satan to operate. Look in verse 13. Such men, these men who are preaching a different Jesus, they're false apostles, they're deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan, who is the father of lies, disguises himself as an angel of light, and so do his best ministers. What were these ministers preaching exactly? Well, it's difficult to speculate or to know conclusively. We can only speculate. But there, I'm not sure that it really matters. There's an infinite number of ways that the square peg of the gospel has been trimmed down by Satan's ministers. You hear me? By Satan's ministers to fit into the round hole of the world and to be palatable and acceptable and nice and suitable and clean. Some have speculated, though, that what they were preaching was something similar to a health and wealth gospel, a Joel Osteen kind of ministry, where Jesus didn't come to save wretched sinners from their sins, but rather to save, to make pretty decent chaps a lot better, to give them their best life now, here on earth, to give them prestige and happiness and wealth and fitness and a nice smile and a pretty wife. But Jesus didn't come for that, did he? He came to give us new life now and the promise of true life, free from sin later, if we will fight against that sin now with all our might, with the gospel, and put it to death. And pursue holiness. No matter what they were teaching, it was deceiving the bride. And she was in great danger of being seduced by another groom. Whose end, he says, will be according to his deeds. He says their deeds. He really means Satan's deeds and the deeds of darkness. Now, that's what's going on in the passage. What does the Spirit want us to learn from it today? The first thing that we need to learn from this passage is actually something that it clearly does not teach us. But something we would be inclined to assume since we breathe the air that we breathe, that it is teaching us. It does not teach us, though Paul is using this wonderful analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. It's rich and beautiful and a wonderful, huge analogy. It does not teach us that we are individually brides of Christ. This is a metaphor describing the relationship between Christ and his church. It does not teach us to think of ourselves as brides of Christ individually. There's a lot of pressure on us, especially as men, to relate to God as if we were women. Doug Wilson, a pastor in Idaho who has written extensively on biblical sexuality, has said that feminine piety has become in our day the universal standard of what true piety is. So much so that we've completely lost any appreciation for understanding of masculine piety. We don't even know what it is. When it does appear, he says, occasionally it does, we're totally thrown by it. We don't even know what to do with it. It must be legalism. It must be pride. 
It must be whatever, but it's not godly. Get that out of the church. Every, all of our assumptions for what godliness is today are feminine assumptions. And feminine, you know, femininity is wonderful. We love it, right? God intended it for good, but to be a complement to masculine piety. Something that takes the edge off in just the right way. Not something that is the standard for how men are supposed to think of themselves in relationship to Jesus Christ. Pastor Wilson's not the only one who's recognized this problem. Ann Douglas, an avowed feminist and a, and a world-class scholar, has said in her book, The Feminization of American Culture, that since the time of the Industrial Revolu- Revolution, the Victorian era, that religion has been emasculated, in quotes. First page of her book. She actually thinks that's a bad thing in a lot of ways. I mean, she does want... She does subscribe to the feminist agenda, but she thinks that it's been, it's, it's been done on all the wrong ways, and it's been, it's, she likes, actually, the old Calvinism. She appreciates it for its manliness, because at least it produced a good culture. <laughs> so she kind of regrets that we've given it up. The old Cal- Calvinism, she clearly says, was, was manly. It was authoritative, and it was manly. God was in charge and big. And the ministers preached it like he was. She goes on to quote Henry James, the author, who says, The conscious force of church authority has given way to the unconscious influence of domestic affection. Adult politics have succumbed to infantile piety. Ecclesia, church authority, has become a nursery. Masculinity is vanquished in the congregation, even more significantly, in the pulpit. The long and the short of it is this. It's a complicated history that has led to this problem today. But the long and the short of it is that manhood, fatherhood, has gone almost completely dormant in our culture, and especially in the church. We've lost it. It does trace back, though, to, best I can tell, to Bernard of Clairvaux, around 1100. Actually, probably all the way back to origin, but Clairvaux kind of revived a lot lot of old way of interpreting the Song of Songs and made it popular in the 1100s. He allegorized it. Well, it's already kind of an allegory, isn't it? But what he did was he individualized it. He saw each individual as the bride of Christ. This led to Marianism. A lot of the the aspects to Marianism that we understand today are linked to Clairvaux and this discovery of his. And it led to some pretty extreme and grotesque and disgusting things. It was very popular with the nuns. Go figure. It introduced into the church a kind of eroticism subjectivity, effeminacy that has colored absolutely everything. Here's an example of a popular worship song. I mean a popular worship song by a mega popular worship band from last year. 
My hands are searching for you. My arms are outstretched towards you. I feel you on my fingertips. My tongue dances behind my lips for you. This fire rising through my being, burning. I'm not used to seeing you. I'm alive, I'm alive. I can feel you all around me, thickening the air I'm breathing, holding on to what I'm feeling, savoring this heart that's healing. My hands float up above me, and you whisper, you love me. And I begin to fade into our secret place. Disgusting, right? Men? It has a proper... It has its place in Scripture. It has a proper sphere of interpretation. But men, breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) It is not you by yourself that is supposed to relate to Jesus Christ in this way. You are to relate to him... How? We read it this morning in the scripture lesson. As sons to a father. Even you women, if there's any sex changing that goes on in the gospel, it is that you women become men. And this is good for you because you become heirs with full privilege, full right, full inheritance. God makes you sons in his household. Not just women who don't get squat. Men, you are not brides of Christ by yourself. You are sons of God. So what is your relationship to the church then? She is the bride of Christ. What is your relationship to her? Who is she to you? She is your mother. It would be too complicated and too long for me to demonstrate this from scripture because there's not like a one place I can go to that's going to seal the deal. You'd have to spend some time and piece together imagery throughout scripture to show this. But it's enough to say, I believe, that the church fathers throughout history have always understood that this is the case. The church is the bride of Christ. We are God's sons. She is our mother. That's what Cyprian said, remember? You've heard it before. He who won't have... The church as his mother may not have God as his father. Now, in the church, in the church, in the mother, God has ordained that men should lead. And there is a real sense in the gospel in which we are all equal and level. Paul says it in Galatians. There's neither slave nor free man, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. All are one. That's true in regards to our salvation, in regards to our inheritance, in regards to our access to God. We're equal. But are we equal in other aspects? No, we're not. In very real ways, we remain unequal. Men are in authority in the church. There are fathers. It's a household. There are fathers, there are mothers, there are children. They all have their place, they all have their role. The fathers have authority.
And how are these men supposed to behave themselves? How are they supposed to carry themselves? How are they to do this leading? They're to do it as men. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. That's what Paul says to us men. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Be men. The next thing that we need to learn from this is that Satan is a real enemy. He is real. And he has real help in this world. There are real dangers. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we're told that if we resist him, he will flee from us. This is true, but it's still the case that this roaring lion is not often recognized as such, right? What Paul says is true. He's disguised. He can deceive us. He's snake-like. He will devour us, but we won't see it coming. So what do we do, men? What do we do? We get ourselves some discernment. That's what part of being men is. It's a manly art that Scripture teaches us is obtained through constant practice. We have to start by assuming that there is real evil, that what the Scripture says is true, there is, the Satan is real, that he really is roaming around, going about seeking to devour, that he has help, and we have to begin discerning between good and evil, between the real Jesus and the fake. We also need to get ourselves the right kind of pastors. You see how important Paul is in this covenant between bride and the bridegroom? He betrothed them. God has set aside certain men, set them apart, has given them his spirit in a special way, has given them authority to care for us. We need to make sure we have the right kind of pastor. How would we know that we had the right kind of pastor? He would himself discern between good and evil. He would teach us to discern all kinds of things. He would be emotionally invested in us like Paul is. He would get jealous. He would fear for our souls. He would go so far as to have to take on the indignity of boasting in order to woo us back to the real Jesus. And finally, we need to love our mother, men and women. We, are to, we need to beautify her with our good works. We need to seek our own sanctification and hers, the good of others. We need to devote our lives to her, orient our lives around the church. She is the pearl of great price. She's, we know that she's valuable just by the very fact that there are so many counterfeits in the world. We are to seek for her as for hidden treasure. She's not always easy to find. But when we do find her, we ought to sell everything we have and go out and buy it. You understand? She's valuable. She's precious. She's our mother. We ought to love her. We ought to, get, as Don sang in her offertory, to give, to give, to give, 
to give and give. For his sake and for hers. We ought to submit to her discipline. It's hard. We're to rise up and call her blessed. Best way to do it is submit to her discipline. She calls you to the table, come to the table. She sends you to your room, go to your room. (laughs) She puts broccoli in front of you and says, you need to eat this, you eat it. And you trust that God will provide for you through her. But realize that she's, we live in a kind of already but not yet time. This is a time not of consummation but of betrothal. We're waiting. And we're doing the work of purifying, of readying ourselves as a church. So be patient with her. She will let you down. She will hurt you. Be patient with her. Love her. Forgive her. Let's pray.